Welcome to The Balance. My name is Dr. Catlin Tucker, and today I have James Anderson joining me from Australia on the podcast. He is an international speaker, an author, an educator, super passionate about helping us become better learners. And he has developed a mindset continuum that is based on Carol Dweck's work on growth mindsets. And he has just published a new book titled Learnership. And there is an audio version as well, both of which I will include in the show notes. But I'm very excited to have James on the podcast to talk about his work and his new book. So I want to welcome you, James. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'd love for you to kind of start and tell the audience a little bit about your journey in education, where your career began, and kind of what brought you to the work you're doing today. Thanks, Kayla. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, I was a teacher by training, um, and my vision when I became a teacher was to be a senior biology teacher. It was all mm-hmm. about the subject. Um, I landed in a middle school um, and found that I really enjoyed teaching kids. I was far more interested in the person than the subject. That sort of led me to do some work around um, Art Costa and Benekalik's work around habits of mind, looking mm-hmm. at how the kids engaged in the learning process which took me to a national research project in Australia around the habits of mind in my first book. Wow. From there, I sort of stepped into sort of this consultancy role fairly accidentally and sort of kept delving into those ideas around habits of mind, around mindset, around Ericsson's work, around practice, Mm -hmm. which led me to my second book, which is The Agile Learner, this idea of the habits of mind on their own weren't enough. They needed a growth mindset to underpin them and the process of practice to develop them. And you know, from there, the ideas just kept getting deeper and deeper until we started to talk about this idea of learnership that we're here to chat about today. Yeah, well, we connected because my good friend, Jay McTie, sent me your new book. And after reading the first two chapters, I emailed Jay and I said, you have to put me in touch with him so I can see if he'll come on the podcast and chat about this book, because there's a lot of really interesting overlap and things that I'm interested in and I write about and kind of what you cover in learnership. So one of the first things that hit me, I was in chapter one and you were talking about leaders desire to prepare students students for kind of a complex and really rapidly changing future that they're going to be living in. And you kind of make this point early on about how critical agency is to kind of this preparation. So one, I'd love for you to define agency for anybody listening who's kind of wondering what the exact definition of that is from your perspective and why you think it's so critical to, in your words, kind of lead a rich and fulfilling, meaningful life. Oh, wow. Look, we could have a much, much longer conversation about this over a few glasses of wine, couldn't we? And I would love to do that at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, let's do that. Uh, look, this idea of agency is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot, and it's got a, a really deep, rich history. You know, philosophers, theologians have been uh, discussing the idea of agency for, for centuries. And today we're talking more and more about it because we see students that are are lacking agency in the world. And so before I define it, I'll sort of talk about what it's not. Mm -hmm. Because someone who lacks agency in the world feels like the world happens to them. Right? They feel like they're the victim of their circumstances. They feel powerless in the world, not powerful. 
And I think we see students a lot these days in this world that you mentioned that's you know, rapidly changing where change is the only constant and uncertainty mm -hmm. is the only certainty. We, we feel we get a lot of kids that feel like the, the, the world happens to them. And that leads to all these discussions we have about resiliency and those sorts of ideas that because the big bad world is going to come along, that these kids need to be protected in some way, need to bounce back and recover. Agency, when you have agency in the world, though, you are powerful in the world. The world still comes along, it still happens. But instead of happening to you, you happen back to it. You make a difference. You feel powerful, not powerless. You are the master of your circumstances, not the victim. Mm -hmm. And so when I sort of looked at that broad understanding of what agency is about and then tried to define you know, the question you just asked, what's the actual mm -hmm. definition here? No one agrees. <laughs> like we've all got these... <laughs> We've all got these kind of sort of definitions of agency and you know, different education departments around the world and in National Baccalaureate organisation, people like this, define it in different ways. So for my purposes, I brought all those definitions together and tried to capture that essence of what we're talking about. The definition is the degree to which an individual is able to take initiative to meaningfully influence their world particularly in the face of challenges. Mm -hmm. It's got three interconnected and equally important parts. The environment to act, which is the world around us, the will to act, which is our mindset, and the power to act, which is what we're talking about around learnership. Mm -hmm. And a couple of things to note in that definition. First off, it's the degree. It's not a case of having agency or not having agency. It's how much agency do we have in the world? It's about taking initiative, making choices and taking actions in the world. And you know, this, I think, where we've gone wrong with a lot of our work around agency. We talk about voice and choice. You know, this is the sort of catchphrase around agency. We need to give kids voice and choice. That idea, it sort of gets it back to front. People with agency have voice and choice, but just giving students agency doesn't just giving them voice and choice doesn't give them agency it doesn't change who they are mm -hmm. and we've got to ask that question that you know if the voice we give them is a voice they already had except we hadn't let them use it if the choices we're letting them make are choices they could have already made but we hadn't let them do that we've got to ask are we giving them the power to choose or just the permission mm, because this work around agency <laughs> A lot of people are taking it as a pedagogy. Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we, we come into a classroom and if I do this, students will have agency and I'm a better teacher. But agency isn't a pedagogy. It's an outcome. It's the result. When you, if you're not changing the student, if the student isn't better able to participate in the world, to have the power to act, then we can't really say our work around agency is making a difference. That's really interesting because when I was reading that section and the the different you know the different dimensions of agency, I was thinking, how can we have students go into the world and feel that they can exert their own kind of power on their situation and make meaningful choices to kind of steer their lives in important and dynamic ways if they don't have the option to do any of that when they spend seven days 
or five days of the seven day week in schools where they don't have any practice making decisions. Because part of what I ask teachers to do is to think about how can we use student agency and meaningful choice in a classroom environment to remove barriers, to create flexible pathways, but also just to develop a level of confidence in these human beings in the process of making key decisions about their learning in this context, but like eventually their lives, because so many kids I see in classrooms have such little meaningful choice in that experience that then when they are given true agency to make an important decision, they kind of freeze because they're just like, I don't, I don't know how to make the best decision or what the best decision is going to be. So it's interesting hearing you talk about, you know, agency in that educational context. And that's where the importance of challenge comes in. When we talk about agency, it's about important things, difficult things, challenging things, not trivial. And Mm -hmm. so much of what we're doing in the name of agency in schools is giving kids trivial choices, choices they could have already made, choices that occur in what I call their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And the, the environment that we create for students, if we're going to change them, needs to be an environment rich in challenge. And when you, the story you just told about kids that freeze up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that you say about you know, students freezing because they freeze when they don't know what to do. And that's why the environment we provide students is so important. It's got to be an environment rich in challenges. It's no use giving them choices over easy things, mm-hmm. over trivial things. What we need to do is to teach them what to do when they don't know what to do. And that means recognising first off that they're capable of Mm. overcoming challenges where they don't immediately know the answer. That's the the mindset part. And secondly, that they can change themselves. They can actually know how to go about building the abilities that will let them confront those challenges. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what we're teaching them, if the sort of voice and choice that we're giving them is always an easy choice, a voice they already had, they expect challenges to be easy. And when they get hard, they run from them. That's really interesting. So it's really about agency paired with challenge. And I also think a little bit of what you're saying reminds me of something that I say when I work with educators, which is, I think they're scared to give students agency and meaningful choice over things that are important and challenging, because the fear is, will they make the best choice? And my message is, of course, they won't always make the best choice. So what structures and supports, what reflective practice are we asking them to do after they've made an important or challenging decision or choice that lets them then take a minute and figure out, was that the best choice for me? If I was in a similar situation in the future, would I make a different choice? And so instead of fearing that they won't always make the best choice, which none of us do in life, it's like, how are we supporting scaffolding and encouraging reflective practice around this decision making? And I think that the idea of choice there is the really key one. Yeah, in terms of agency, um, this is the will to act part, the mindset part, that mm-hmm. someone with a fixed mindset thinks their abilities are fixed, they, they, they are the way they are, the person they are today is the person they are, they're going to be in five years' time. And in terms of the way it influences your agency in the world, those people, whether they're adults or kids, look at that challenge and rather than asking, you know, what choice am I going to make, They ask the question, have I got the choice? 
Mm. They ask themselves, have I got the abilities to do that or not? And this is where I say in the book that um, there's a big difference between not getting better at something because you don't want to. That's the student making the, the bad choice. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want to do that and that's fine. And the student who says, I'm not going to get better at that because I don't believe I can. And this is when I interviewed a whole lot of principals further my book and they said they want their students to lead aspirational lives. They want to see the world full of opportunities, not threats. Mm-hmm. And the concern is, and the concern of a lot of parents, is that you know, they'll go out into the world and not see that opportunity. They'll say, well, I'm not the right sort of person for that. I'm, I'm not smart enough. I'm not musical enough. I'm not artistic enough. And so rather than making the choice not to do those things, they don't believe they have the choice in the first place. And, you know, we could have a whole other conversation about the number of students in our classrooms that are what I call demotivated. Mm-hmm. These are the kids that aren't just not engaging in your classrooms because they're not interested. They just don't think they can do it. They think their effort will be wasted. Their failure is predetermined. So they say, why bother? And that, that's the way mindset plays out in this idea of agency, that when you see yourself as fundamentally a fixed way, you look to see where you fit in the world. Mm. And there are some parts of the world you don't fit in, some things you can never do, and unfortunately, some challenges that will always be beyond you. And that's where the world starts happening to you. Yeah, I thought that was such an interesting connection and point you made when you anchor very early on in this book, this connection between cultivating agency and the connection to a growth mindset as being both in, you know, critical to being successful and thriving and having doors open for you in this rapidly changing kind of future that students are going to be sent out into. So in chapter two, I love the title of this chapter because for me, it really frames the why are we reading this book, right? You say we don't have a teaching problem we have a learning problem. And so I want you to talk about what you've observed in education um, that you think is problematic and what impact it's having on students, teaching, you know, teachers, the school communities in general, even leaders trying to lead in this moment. I think if you look at what we've been doing in education over the last 10, 15, 20 years, look at um, what's on the bookshelves in mm-hmm. um, schools, look at the where the professional learning budgets are being spent, look at what the research is telling us. And we're always talking about research base and we should be, but nearly all that research, nearly all that focus, nearly all that budget is being spent on teacher practice. The idea is that teachers teach and learning happens. I was actually um, working with a group of principals just recently, a group of about 75 of principals in a network of schools in Pakistan. And I asked them, what would your teachers do if you asked them to plan a unit of work? And they almost unanimously said, to start with, they'd look to see what needs to be taught, you know, the curriculum, the mm-hmm. fair place to start. And then they'd ask themselves, what do I need to do to make learning happen? And we've got this idea that teachers are in charge of learning. And... <laughs> I'm not trying to minimise the role of the teacher at all, but I'm reminded of the words of John Holt, the educator out of the US, the founder of the unschooling movement, who said that learning is not the product of teaching. Learning is the product of the activity of learners. And when I read that years ago now, it really struck me because it occurred to me that you can be the best teacher in the world. 
you can give you know, beautifully formatted feedback. And we all know the importance of feedback yep. and all the different qualities of feedback. But I think every teacher listening today has you know, constructed a piece of feedback, either written it or spoken it, and just gone, I'm brilliant. Like, this is fantastic <laughs> feedback. Like, I've been to the PD. I know uh -huh. what good quality feedback looks like. This is yeah. good quality feedback. Yeah. And you've given it to the student, you know, safe in the knowledge that you're a good teacher. You're giving great feedback. And the student's gone, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Not paid any attention to it, not acted on it. And you might be the greatest teacher, but if the student doesn't do their part of the bargain, yeah. no learning occurs. And so what we've done over the last 10 or 15 years is put all the focus on the teacher practice. And I reckon, and I, I do a lot of work in schools, I reckon we've got some pretty damn good teachers out there. Mm. But if students aren't holding up their side of the bargain, then the learning doesn't happen. And there's another side to that as well, that when all the responsibility is seen to lie in the hands of the teachers, mm -hmm. then all the blame goes there as well when right. students don't succeed. Mm -hmm. And I think, now tell me if you can relate to this. When I was a kid, I used to go to parent-teacher interviews, you know, with my mum and my teacher. Yeah. And the teacher and my mum would sit there and tell me what I needed to do in school to get better marks. Now what seems to be happening more and more in schools is that mum and the student comes into school and then the teacher is being told, why aren't you teaching the kid to be better at this school? Why are they failing? It's your fault. Uh-huh. And so, and we see this all playing out on teachers, that the stress they're under, the focus they're under, you know, all those sort of things that we hear about. So this work, when I say that what we've got, when we've got quality teaching, mm -hmm. but we're still not getting the outcomes we want, Mm -hmm. We don't have a teaching problem. What we have is a learning problem. And what we've seen as the focus has become increasingly intense on the quality of teaching, the standard of teaching, what teachers do in classrooms, teacher practice, all this sort of stuff. At the same time, we've seen students sit back. We've seen people start to talk about the rise of passive learners, Mm -hmm. Learners who sit back and wait for learning to happen to them. Learners that don't know how to participate in the learning process. And that's what I'm talking about when I say we don't have a teaching problem. We've got a learning problem. And so the focus of the book is about saying, well, let's recognise we want quality teaching. Don't get me wrong, we want quality teaching. But quality teaching on its own is not enough. It's got to be matched by quality learning. And that's what I call the learning equation that we get maximum growth where we've got quality teaching matched with quality learning. Yeah, no, I love that. When I read the whole quote, I like stopped, read it again. And it reminded me so often when I work with teachers, one of the things I'll say because they're always looking for a solution. How do we get kids leaning in, engaging, blah, blah, blah. And I just have to say sometimes, like the reality is you cannot make anyone learn. We can really only create the conditions in which students might want to learn. And as I was reading your book, I was also, it's not even just about creating the conditions for them to learn. It's also proactively helping them develop the skills and ability to be dynamic learners, right? And that's the piece, you know, in my own work, in my last book, The Shift to Student-Led, it was really about 
you know, teachers are exhausted, they're burnt out, and there's so much pressure on them. But they're also doing the heavy cognitive lift in classrooms, and not sharing that responsibility for learning. And you talked a bit about the importance of that partnership between teacher and learner, which is something I talk about a ton as well, but I don't see in practice. And you make this really interesting distinction between learning something and becoming a learner. So I know I just want to briefly have you speak to that distinction because that was another moment where I was like, why aren't we talking more about the difference between this and education? It's a really important distinction between the learning, the outcomes, the, the what we're learning and being a learner because teachers are yeah, because they're so driven by it's your practice that matters and your practice that gets the outcomes and the outcomes that we measure are these short-term outcomes, the curriculum mm -hmm. outcomes. Those principles I just mentioned said their teachers would look at what needs to be learnt in the next six weeks, you know, those mm -hmm. dot points. And we can take shortcuts to get those outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I was working with a teacher here in Australia and she was getting some of the best results in a year 12 business management class, her final year of high school class, than you know, across the state. Now think about what I just said. She wasn't getting any results at all. Her students were getting the results, mm -hmm. but she was getting the credit. She was getting a promotion in the end for getting wow. these results because she was doing all the heavy lifting of learning. She had the best teaching strategies. She took the kids' work home every second night. She wrote more in those kids' workbooks than the kids did. She was saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. This is how you do it. She was doing all the learning for them. And as a result, they did really well on these short-term outcomes, best results in the state. Mm. But when you took those scaffolds away, when you took those kids from year 12, that controlled environment where they were being taught, to a less controlled environment of university, what do you reckon happened? They fell apart. They'd been doing the learning, but they hadn't become the learners. They didn't know how to go about being in charge of the learning process. And this is what I talk about in the book where we talk about we have this culture of teaching and performance mm -hmm. where we have these directed learners, learners that rely on the teacher to guide them in the learning process, which is great to meet short-term outcomes. But if like one of my principles that I talked to in the first chapter, we measure the success of our schooling, not by what they're doing at the end of this year, but what they're doing in 20 years time, by mm -hmm. the agency they have in the world, then we're not setting kids up to succeed in life if all we're doing is setting them up to succeed in school. Well, and I just had this moment because so often when I work with schools around how do we leverage technology enhanced instructional models to shift students to the center of learning, really help them develop self-regulation skills, the ability to kind of lead their own learning. So often the pushback is, well, that's not how university and college is set up. They're going to sit in a lecture hall. They're going to take notes. Da, 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 da. And I think what you just said is so critical, which is, but then you have this degree of independence where you really do have to drive a lot of the learning happening. And if you haven't cultivated those skills in K-12 setting before you go off to university, then I can imagine you get there and they really struggle. Yet that is the argument against trying different instructional approaches that allow students the time and space to lead learning in classrooms, not all the time, but some of the time. So they can start to hone some of those learning skills. 
And I, I certainly don't want to leave your listeners with the impression that this is a one or the other thing. Right. That you can have your short-term outcomes or your long-term goals. I think if you set your sights, and this is the underlying theme in the book, if you set your sights on growth and learning rather than on performance and teaching, then you're going to have students in your class that you know, embrace challenges that cultivate their habits of mind, that you know, know how to use feedback and tailor it to meet their needs. And these students aren't just going to meet the standards we're trying to get in that short-term goal, they're going to exceed them. And mm. so you're not just setting them up to succeed in school, you're setting them up to succeed in life as well. So it's not a case of, uh, let's give up on our short-term outcomes and you know set them up for the life in 20 years' time that I'm not going to get any credit for and no one's going to care about what I've done. It's, <laughs> but it is, it's, but the, yeah. the teachers are under the pump and they're going to be measured by their, their standards that the students have achieved at the end of the year and all the rest yep. of it. Yeah. But if your students are more effective learners, two really powerful things happen. One, they start lifting more of the cognitive load in the classroom. It makes teachers' lives easier. I, I talk to teachers all the time that talk about having to drag students through the curriculum, you know, to do all that work for them, to work out what the appropriately challenging task is, to give them the feedback they need to correct their mistakes. But when we develop more skillful learners, they know how to target those challenges. They know how to develop the habits of mind to meet them. And the second thing that happens is that you, know, you mentioned the sort of those rich curriculum. You mentioned Jay McTie's work earlier on mm -hmm. and your relationship with him. You know, I, I love Jay McTie and Grant Wiggins' work, the understanding by design, the open-ended tasks, the rich tasks and all the rest of it. But I often hear teachers that try to adopt those sort of ideas and they say, you know, so kids, what do you want to learn about? And what happens is that mm -hmm. what I call the beginning learners go, the easiest possible thing, thanks very much. <laughs> yes. The performance learners, the sort of next rung up on my list, they say, oh, I know, can I do the thing I did last time because I know how to do that really well. Mm -hmm. The directed learners, which is the vast majority of our, our school, our students rather, go, what do you reckon we should do? Yeah. Like they've got no direction themselves. They're waiting to be told because they, they haven't been given those sort of um, choices before. When we work on the skill of learning, and we develop learners that can take charge of the learning process, that want to take on challenges, that have goals and so forth. When you ask that sort of challenge, that sort of question, well, what do you want to learn about? Where's your challenge? Where are your goals? They have goals that are challenging. And it lets you go, well, this is great. I'd love to be engaged in this sort of curriculum because when I tried it before with my beginning learners, mm -hmm. oh, it didn't really work very well. Yep. So it actually lets you get back to what you're passionate about and really get back into the, the love of teaching because you've got students that are matching your skill. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. And I, I want to dig into this idea of mindset, which is so incredibly important. And I found, I think that's probably one of the things in this book that I was the most kind of fascinated by because in my own work, I get brought in all of the time to work with teachers around designing particular types of instructional kind of experiences and using technology in the mix and student-led kind of experiences. But I can spend all day working with teachers on what I kind of think of as the skill set tool set part of the equation. But if we never get into mindset, 
nothing meaningful really changes for most teachers. And I love that you kind of referred to mindset as autopilot, like the autopilot or the the things we don't think about, but that they actually guide a lot of our decision making. And so you tell this really great story about delivering a keynote to a room full of leaders. Um, you're talking about mindset in the context of like students and teachers, I think. And um and and then you kind of shift the dialogue and kind of present this interesting question to this room full of leaders. So I'd love for you to just briefly share that story um, and how it highlights this need for kind of a different approach to thinking about mindset from that traditional black and white. Do you have fixed or do you have growth mindset to something that's more of a continuum? So the story I was telling that day was the story that social media sells all the time. It's the story of two mindsets and you know, the fixed mindset where people avoid challenges and they give up easily and they dislike effort and all those very, very negative ideas. And the growth mindset that's you know, positive, you embrace challenges, you love effort, you thrive on feedback and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. And this is the, you know, the Pinterest version of mindset <laughs> where we've got these two mindsets mm -hmm. One is fixed and it's bloody awful mm -hmm. and one is growth and it's fantastic. And so I was in front of these three, 400 odd principles and I'd you know, done that whole journey like that and said, so I'm really interested to know how many of you have got a fixed mindset? And of course, the whole room went dead silent. <laughs> no one in that room was prepared to have a fixed mindset because that was awful. Right. And the problem with that is that's what pretty much everyone's done. Um, every teacher you meet, every student you talk to, all the rest of well, I haven't got that terrible fixed one. And when you've only got a choice of two, when you haven't got the fixed, you must have the growth. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that once you've got the growth mindset, no further work is necessary. And this has led to what we've what um, uh, Carol Dweck and her colleague Susan Mackey have described as the false mindset. Mm -hmm. And the false mindset is someone you know, might be in your school today. They might be the champion of mindsets in your schools. They're promoting a growth mindset. They're adopting growth mindset strategies. But because they haven't spent their time deeply reflecting on their own mindset, what they actually do in their classroom is send much more fixed messages. For example, I, I worry, and I worry about this one a lot, I worry about the number of teachers that have adopted praise effort mm. in their classrooms. You know, this is the growth mindset strategy, praise effort. But because they haven't realised that they've actually got some fixed beliefs, they actually look at their students as this one's a little bit better than that one. Mm. What they do is they end up praising struggling students for effort. They don't even realise they're doing it. But what happens is that then struggle and effort becomes the consolation prize and the kids with the, that get through it easily, they're actually doing easy stuff, um, are the ones that are praised for their quick performance. And that reinforces the idea that effort makes up for a deficit. Effort's a necessary evil. And so what we've discovered is that when we look at fixed and growth, it's really good for understanding the concepts. Right. When you talk about a fixed mindset or a growth mindset, it lets you contrast them and say, look, you know, how are they different? But when you're interested in changing mindsets, you need to do something a bit different. And that's where my work, you mentioned it around the mindset continuum yes. comes in. But no one in the world has a fixed mindset. No mm -hmm. one. And no one in the world has a growth mindset. What we've actually got is a, a mindset that falls somewhere along this continuum between the two extremes. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what the mindset continuum does. It breaks it down into your response around effort and challenge and mistakes and a whole lot of other categories and looks at the variety of responses. And the beauty about that is that when I ask that group of principles, you know, I describe the continuum to them and I ask that group of principles, you know, how many of you are prepared to recognize that you could be more growth orientated in your views? Every hand went mm-hmm. up. And when you realize, as Carol Dweck said, that a growth mindset is not a declaration, it's a journey. Mm-hmm. And that it's a journey slowly along this continuum. We start recognizing why a whole lot of our mindsets um, initiatives and interventions in schools have failed because they've taught about mindset. They've said this is a growth mindset and ask kids to adopt it. To They've tried to install or instill the mindset in those students. But what they've got to do is to teach for the mindset, to create an environment that's full of what I call my, a growth mindset movers, mm-hmm. little nudges, little ways of we've got to um, encourage, to nurture, to nourish, to nudge an increasingly growth-orientated mindset in our students. And the reason we need to do this and the reason it underpins this work around learnership is because fundamentally what a mindset is, is your understanding of yourself as a learner. Someone towards the fixed end of the continuum doesn't understand learning. They think learning is about um, discovering their abilities, working out what they can and can't do, where their limits are, where they fit in the world. But someone with a growth mindset understands they change, that they're a creator of their abilities that the person they are today is a shadow of the person they're going to be in five years' time. And once you understand yourself as a learner, someone who recognises that the world's still going to happen to them, coming back to this agency discussion, Mm -hmm. but they don't have to let it keep happening to them, they can change themselves so they can become the person they want or need to be in the world. When you understand that, the next sensible question to ask is, how do I get really, really good at that process of becoming the person I want or need to be in the world. And that's what learnership is about. A lot of our students at the moment rely on the teacher to help them become the person they need to be. Teacher, tell me how to do this. Teacher, tell me how to change. Teacher, tell me what I need to do. And so when challenge, like real challenge comes along, like COVID, you get a whole lot of these people putting up their hands saying, help, help, I don't know what to do. You get a whole lot of other people who don't even rely on the teacher that sort of duck for cover as, mm-hmm. oh, I can't change at all. Um, you know, someone protect me until this passes by. And so growth mindset is a thread that weaves its way right throughout this work around learnership because it helps students understand themselves as learners and sets them up to become better learners. Yeah. Well, and what I love about this is I know the focus is on helping students develop the skill set of being a learner, honing the skills to be a learner. And before we started recording, I was sharing that I just absolutely love this anecdote in the the book where you kind of talk about this comparison of, you know, there's dancers and athletes that put so much, you know, everybody can move. Everybody moves their, well, most people can move their bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't say everybody, but most people can move their bodies. It's something that we are able to do when all kids are able to learn, but there are then people who really invest the time and the energy and the effort to understand if I'm a dancer, if I'm an athlete, 
how I move specific muscles and and what to do with my body in much more specific and dynamic ways. And the same thing goes for learning. We're all built to be learners as children, but some of us really hone that skill set in an intentional way that makes us these skillful learners, which I loved. And I know the focus is on helping students to kind of understand growth mindset and this continuum and much like learning it's like there's no end point to cultivating a growth mindset you can always be growing and changing and developing but this is also work i would love to see teachers doing for themselves right one of the things i always say is you're the teacher you are the lead learner in a classroom so cultivating this kind of reflective practice and this growth at the teacher level and then at the leader level. Like if every level of person involved in a school community was understanding these different parts of growth mindset and the kind of continuum. And I love the language that you include that kind of talks about what does it look like at each of the different levels, right? I feel like that's how we start to create really exciting change in school communities around growth mindset. And I think the other part about that too is that we we need to recognise that teachers have been trained in how to be really good teachers Mm -hmm. and they're really skillful in the skill of teaching, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're a skillful learner, that they're different skills. And one of the realisations that a, a lot of teachers have as I'm doing this work is that they are really good teachers but they've actually forgotten how to learn. Mm. They've actually spent a lot of their career in their comfort zone just doing what they can do. And yet we ask students to to go into their learning zone, to stretch and challenge themselves. And we've forgotten that when we go there, we're actually confused. We don't know what to do. We we struggle because we've been doing it easy for a long Mm -hmm. time. And so this, this work around teaching students to be better learners does demand that we really think not just about how we teach, but how students learn and how we guide them in becoming better learners. And it's not just the the skill set that you mentioned, although the skill set's really mm-hmm. important. It's about relationship. It's about the relationship you have with challenge, not just the, the skill set you have for solving challenges. It's about the relationship you have with habits of mind, right. how you go about understanding and developing them. It's about your relationship with effort and your understanding about how you either waste it, spend it or invest it. And so it's not just a collection of you know different tools and strategies that we can sort of box up and say, here's your toolkit to be a right. learner. About that deep understanding of, of how you go about developing the learning process. And that part is the part that's bedded on the growth mindset. Yeah. And, and how do we teach teachers to embed that important work of thinking about our relationship or a student's relationship to those things right in the context of the class and the the curriculum and all that other stuff, because it can't be something separate. It has to be something that's woven into the fabric of the work we do with kids every day. Every lesson every day is a lesson to teach kids to be better learners and to develop a growth mindset. And that's where we sort of went wrong with the mindset part. We did it on a Tuesday afternoon in a one and a half hour lesson. <laughs> yeah. and But we did, yeah. you know, we taught about it. And we need to teach for Mm. it. And the strategies that I've sort of put together and I talk about throughout the book to help help teachers sort of nurture a more growth-orientated mindset in the students is I I give them a series of what I call nudges. Mm -hmm. Nudges are as a term out of behavioral psychology and it um, helps us overcome that fixed mindset bias that we might be carrying with us. And look, there's 20 or so in the book and I've got another 20 or so I use with schools that I work with. But a really simple one. 
you know, the idea of attaching timestamps to performance. We often say to kids, you know, I want you to do your best, or even worse, we say to kids, this is your best work, well done. Now, to a student towards the fixed end of the continuum, and you say, this is your best work, well done, they're going, great, that's my limit. I, I've topped right. out. I'm five years old and it never gets better. Oh, like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, I see, I see how that would be problematic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, we, of course, the teacher didn't mean that, right. but the words come out and they, that's part of your autopilot. And then the student hears it and it's filtered through a whole lot of other fixed messages that they've heard from their parents and a whole lot of other stuff that you can read about in the book. But they hear it that way. And it doesn't matter what your intentions are. What matters is how it's received. So to change that messaging, to help teachers send more growth oriented messages, the nudge to help you change it is to attach a timestamp. This is your best work so far. This is your best to date. And it's not just your best, it's your current standard. So it's not like kids struggle with maths. Mm -hmm. You're struggling right now with maths. And what we do when we attach a timestamp to performance, we make it about a point in time, not a description of the person. Mm -hmm. And we give them back the permission and the ability to say, well, I'm going to change that. This is my best now, but my next best is going to be here. My next best is going to be even better. The people listening to this podcast didn't see me raise my hands then like yes. you did, but they'll get the yeah. message. No, I love that. And you actually, so I loved this idea of a nudge because I, it, for me, I think tackling mindset can feel so daunting from, you know, especially when we're talking about leaders who are trying to lead this kind of change. And so the nudge also just makes it feel doable. It feels doable for the community, for a teacher, for a student. And I love that because I do think there is this, this way in which it breaks it down and makes it feel like, okay, we, there's somewhere we can start. And you actually say there is one nudge that is more powerful than all the others. And it is, in your words, recognizing that all the value is in the backstory. And when I first read that, I paused because I was like, where is he going with this? I'm so curious. So you say this is the heart of developing growth mindset and a culture of learning. So can you explain this nudge and why it is so powerful? I'll explain it in a couple of points in a story. Okay. So the first point is that for someone with a fixed mindset, they think life is about being. Right? They ask who are they and that sort of thing. Whereas a growth mindset is all about the becoming. Mm. It's all about the process and the growth. And the importance of the backstory is to highlight that process of growth. Whenever we look at a student, you know, we're only looking at them at a point in time. And although this might be a fantastic achievement they've just reached, a great standard they've just achieved, what's important is not where they are. What's important is what they did to get there. And the story I always remember when I think about these ideas is a story related to Picasso. Now, how true this story is, I don't know, but <laughs> it, we'll say it anyway. Okay. And the story goes like this, that Picasso was sitting in a park bench in New York Central Park, and a lady recognised him from across the way. And, you know, big fan and saw him and thought, oh, I'll go up and, go up and talk to him which I personally find a little bit audacious. I, I don't think I would approach Picasso sitting on a park bench. Oh, I remember this story and it gets a bit more audacious. <laughs> yeah. So she comes up to him and says, Picasso, Picasso, you know, I, I saw you there. I'm a huge fan. I, I noticed you've got your sketchbook. Um, have you got a few moments? Would you mind doing a sketch for right. me? Which, you know, 
We're just taking exactly. up a notch. And Picasso's going, you know, sure, yeah, fine, whatever you like. I, I've got a few moments. So he gets his sketchbook out and does this sketch for her. Two minutes later, produces this sketch, tears it out of his book and gives it to the lady. Now, you can imagine her response. She is blown away. Like this is just the highlight of her life to that date. And she's, oh, this is amazing, incredible. Thank you so much. I'll treasure this forever. And Picasso's turned around and said, that'll be $50,000. Thanks very much. <laughs> now, you can imagine her response again. She's uh, taken aback, to say mm-hmm. the least. $50,000, $50, that's a lot of money. Where do you get off charging $50,000 for two minutes work? That is outrageous. <laughs> and Picasso has calmly turned around and said, Miss, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I think you've misunderstood me. You see, that sketch didn't take me two minutes. That sketch took me a lifetime. And what Picasso understood that the lady was missing was that all the value in that sketch was not in the two minutes spent doing it. Mm -hmm. It was in a lifetime becoming the person who could do it in two minutes. And what he recognised is that we we have this idea of innate talent, that people are just the way they are, because we we tend to see them in the moment. The lady saw Picasso do the sketch in two minutes. What she missed was the backstory that he was a two-year-old with crayons, but he actually had a father who was a professor at an art school and giving him some lessons as well. And he kept getting better and better and better and better. And that the value was in the process of improving, not in the moment of proving himself. Mm. And if we can remember that, we're we're dealing with kids that are six, seven, 10, 12, 13 years old. They're not very good at anything. (laughs) Like, seriously. But they're not. Right, exactly. That's why they're here <laughs> with us. They might be, that's, that's right. They might be great for their age. Mm. But what's important is not where they're up to. What's important is what they're doing to get better. And that's what this idea of learnership is about. It's about getting better at the process of getting better. And what we find, like you, the story you were retelling about the skillful dancers, mm. skillful movers, mm. is that most people don't get better at getting better. We sort of get good enough to get by, but we don't spend the time deeply reflecting on how we go about improving. And that's largely the work I draw on around Anders Ericsson, the world's expertise expert, that describes this process of how we go about improving our abilities. And that's where we sort of start talking about learnership. Well, and I hope you don't mind my sharing this, but before we started this conversation, Uh, James here is walking his walk because he said, "Okay, before we start, I want to prime you because I would like some feedback on how this podcast goes, because I intend to do future podcasts. I've done some podcasts, but I always want to get better. And so I'd love to hear your perspective. So here we have somebody (laughs) who's on a podcast intends to do future podcasts and is seeking a specific kind of advice and primed me before the conversation. And to me, that is exactly what you're talking about doing, which is, I know I can always get better. I want to learn how to hone specific skills. I'm going to request specific feedback on this. And I think how great if that's what how kids approach learning is like, I want to continually improve and and I'm going after it very intentionally. Yeah, and it's also the way you do it. So in the in the research that I was doing around this, some people have listened to your story just then and go, well, yeah, he's asking for feedback. For your right. no feedback's important. <laughs> right. But it's the way we do it. 
you know, when I talk about different types of learners, you know, my non-learners just ignore feedback. They're not interested in feedback at all. Beginning learners are the sort of learners who will just go, all right, you gave me feedback and accept it sort of like a commentary on what you've mm-hmm. done, but don't really act mm-hmm. on it. Performance learners, their relationship with feedback is a, a little bit better. Um, they listen to the good parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you ever had kids that you, know, you give them that you know, you've done this well, you've done this well, and they listen to you, and then you start saying, I think you could do this better, and they're off somewhere else by that stage. Right. They don't want to listen to those constructive parts. Directed learners um, wait for you to give feedback. Right? So they'll act on it, but you have to tell them, this is what you need to do. So if I was just a directed learner, um, like happens in many classrooms, I wouldn't have asked you for feedback, mm-hmm. but you might have given it at the end. I'd go, oh, okay, I'll think about that next right. time. An independent learner might have come up to you afterwards and said, look, I'm going to do some more of these podcasts. Um, can you give me some feedback about this? Now, the problem with that is that if you ask for the feedback afterwards, it mightn't fit. Mm-hmm. And I tell a story in my book about asking for feedback after an event and the one person in the room that could have given it to me hadn't paid attention to that part of my presentation. Oh, interesting. And so what I did to try and raise this quality and standard of my feedback to get better at getting better is to do what an agile learner does and to tailor their feedback. And you do that by like what I did up the front. So this is the feedback I need at the end of it. Can you please pay attention to that? And so I'm going to ask you later on for it so it fits exactly what I need. You might be noticing other things, but this is the feedback that I need. And that's what we talk about when we talk about getting better at learning. It's that relationship you have with it. And, you know, we know the importance of feedback, but how you go about doing it is what the um, this work is about. Yeah, and I think a degree of like appreciating, at least from my perspective. So I've written lots of books and I think there are some people who, you know, they work with editors and there's that critical feedback and it's it's hard for them. It makes them feel like they're not doing good enough. And I think I'm definitely a learner. I know I can always do better. And when I get critical feedback, I am like, I appreciate it more than the positive feedback because I'm like, this is how I'm going to get better at this. This is what I'm going to act on and focus on to continually get better at this craft of writing. Um, And I love the idea of that priming, of being really specific because there's all kinds of things that we do where some of it we're confident, but there's other areas we really know we can improve. And so asking for that specifically in advance, like it makes a ton of sense. I'm just having a little bit of a aha moment. <laughs> yeah, it makes it proactive, not reactive. Yeah, I love that. And that's one of the hallmarks of a, an agile learner. They're very proactive about the way they go about their learning. I love that. So you tied, I want to talk about the title, learnership, which yeah. is a word you developed to capture this idea of the expertise we develop in the skill of learning. And you make this that, you know, that's where I got kind of was interested in that analogy about the dancer and stuff. But talk about how you landed on this particular word, because you talked about how important the words we use are when we're describing ideas um, and communicating them to other people and then how you specifically define it, which I know is a couple pages in the book as you break it down. So just kind of a, <laughs> a cliff, cliff notes short. version of it. 
Yeah, look, I, I made the word learnership for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to recognise, we, we talk about learning. We had this discussion at the top of the podcast where we talked about the difference between a, a learner and the learning that is going on. And we talk about you know, students being learners, but we talk about it in a kind of one-dimensional mm -hmm. way. Like they are learners, they are doing the learning but we don't talk much about how well they are learning and sort of changing the grading of the line, getting better at getting better. And so I wanted a word that described that idea of learning as a, a skillful task. Mm -hmm. So I took the idea of learning and the idea of craftsmanship and put those words together to get this word idea of learnership. So when you think about learnership, bring to mind something that you know is done well. Perhaps it's you know, the master chef or perhaps it's the elite dancer or perhaps it's the um, you know, craftsman that does the woodwork or whatever it is. And think about the process they go through to become masters of their craft, to become experts at what they do, and then apply those same concepts to the idea of learning. What do we need to do to improve the way we learn? And I think that having a word having the word learnership to describe that idea of the expertise in learning is really important because it gives us an anchor. What um, Art Costa taught me was a, a cognitive anchor. Once you have a way of labeling something, once you have a way of you know, holding it in your mind and then thinking about the concepts that surround it, it allows you to build on it. It makes it much richer, much more powerful. And so I hope the word learnership becomes you know, like the term lateral thinking or emotional intelligence. Like before Edward de Bono introduced the term lateral thinking, that was an oxymoron. Like he didn't laterally think you've – but now we think about it, that's obvious. It's about creativity. It's about, you know, breadth and so mm -hmm. forth. Same with emotional intelligence. You know, before Howard Gardner popularised that, we didn't have a way to think about how to put those two ideas together. And that's what I hope learnership will do, that in 5, 10, 20, 100 years' time, Learnership is just obvious. Like we're talking about it in primary schools and talking about, well, I'm a pretty good teacher. How are you developing your skill as a learner? And what do I do to help you develop your skill as a learner? And that just becomes part of what we do because in this world that we are, that our children are growing up into, the challenges are becoming more challenging. Mm -hmm. It's not like in 1970 when we said that, you know, the world's there's so much more information and kids are going to have to be lifelong learners and just consume more information. The challenges are more difficult. They're not going to just consume more information and learn more. They've got to be better learners. And that means constantly developing that skill of learning. And that, that's what I hope learnership will do to put, to put that real focus on the process of learning and how you get better at it because that's what's going to help kids along with the growth mindset mm -hmm really thrive, not just survive, in this rapidly changing and increasingly complex world, to have agency in that space that we've you know, talked about the whole um, discussion today. Yeah, I absolutely love the book. I highly encourage anybody to check it out. I will have the link to the book in the show notes, also the audio book, which will have just released mm -hmm. by the time this is out and you're listening it to it. But before we close, I always end by asking my guests to kind of share do you have any tips, any strategies, routines? Obviously, you're doing lots of work with schools and you're writing books and you have a personal life. Like, how do you strive for some semblance of balance in your professional and or personal life um, that 
I or the people listening can learn from because this is called the balance because I am in a constant journey of my own to try to create a healthier balance in my life and like to learn from all the intelligent and interesting people I get to chat with. Oh, good. So you got other people coming on the show as well then. That's good. <laughs> um, uh, look, um, the, the idea of that work-life balance is something that I've, I personally don't sort of buy into very much because I, I, I live a life mm -hmm. and my life involves some things that people call work and some things that people would call play and I, I don't try to distinguish between them. But what I do do increasingly now as I've sort of learnt more and more about this idea is to try to balance my time between the learning and being a learner. That's, you know, when I sat down to write Learnership, um, it's not my first book, it's my fifth mm -hmm. book. And I started writing it and it was about as good as my previous books. Mm -hmm. And I sort of went, I actually needed to be better, but I, I didn't know how to write a better book. Mm -hmm. And so what I needed to focus on was what I needed to do to improve. And I think a lot of us, what we do is we spend a lot of time you know, learning more and we get busy in doing that. But I needed to focus on how to learn better, mm -hmm. to raise my standard, to reach a new, you know, new height, I hope. And it's a height that, you know, thinking about the backstory that we build, that I hope I look back on in five years' time and go, that was great for mm -hmm. them, but now I've got to here and it's even better now. So I think if we spend all our time worrying about the, the learning right. without worrying about how we're becoming a better learner, we stagnate. We become busy at the cost of not becoming better. And so I think the balance that I would talk about here is to balance your time between that, you know, doing what you need to do and doing it well, but finding the time to also invest in yourself and become better than you were before, to really understand yourself as a learner and to raise your standard, to look back on your life, you know, like Picasso did and recognize, hey, I'm bloody good at this mm -hmm. because I've invested the last 40 years in becoming better. Mm. I love that. It's interesting. I have these moments where sometimes I'm so busy doing all the things that I need to do. And I have these moments where I'm like, where have you carved out the time to just be a learner? And then on top of that, this idea of being a better learner and like constantly like striving to improve. And I loved that you demonstrated your timestamps in your own book, because for those of us who write, we always want to constantly be improving. So love that advice. Thank you so much for spending this time chatting with me. We, I mean, I feel like for everybody listening, we got through maybe half of what is in this amazing book. So hopefully I can entice James to come back and chat with me again, but so appreciate you being on the podcast. Uh, Caitlin, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I would love to come back and talk about the other half yeah. of the book as well. <laughs> I think the thing that I love the most about this conversation with James is really the focus on how do we help students to become more skillful learners? We don't just want them to learn concepts and strategies and skills. We really want them to learn how to become 
learners because it is that skill set that's going to help them to really navigate this future reality that is changing and it's going to look so different from today. And they're going to navigate all of these changes. And the more comfortable they are in terms of their relationship with things like challenge and effort, the more successful they are likely to be, the more agency they're going to feel in their lives long after they've left school. So just love that idea. And I appreciate the continuum so that no longer are we talking about growth mindset from this place of black and white, fixed or growth, but really understanding there's all of these different parts of a growth mindset, different kind of areas where we're growing. And there's no end point to growing in terms of our growth mindset, just like there's no end point to learning. So very fun conversation. I want to thank you all for joining me on this episode. If you have questions or requests, please send them my way at Catlin underscore Tucker on X, previously known as Twitter, or at Catlin Tucker on Instagram, or you can always find me on my blog, CatlinTucker.com. 